Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we talk about timeless stories and what they can teach us. Um, I'm Daniel Simpson, and today I'm joined by Miriam Fernandez, uh, who I recently saw on stage in a production of the Mahabharata, um, which is an ancient Indian epic about war and peace, uh, and a lot more besides. Um, the text itself says it talks about everything, so if it isn't in the Mahabharata, it doesn't exist. Um, well, that sounds like a bold claim, perhaps, but uh, it is a fascinating story with many dimensions. Um, as well as being the world's longest poem, it's a bit like every category of literature rolled into one, from a, a tragic family feud to a soap opera um, to the heights of philosophy. Um, and in the process, therefore, lots of yoga comes into the mix, um, particularly uh, in the form of responses to worldly dilemmas. Um, now, part of its appeal are the many shades of grey, <laughs> because the characters do not divide neatly into good guys and bad guys. They're all caught up in dilemmas about how to behave, and, and that gives us lots of food for thought, because it's refreshingly human, <laughs> in that everybody's a little bit flawed. Now, Miriam co-wrote the new production, which uh, was uh, in London back in October at the Barbican. And uh, she also took the role of a storyteller, which is an integral part of how the Mahabharata has endured over the centuries. It's been told and retold in many different forms. Um, so we unpack the meaning of telling a story about telling stories, which uh, will make a lot more sense as we dive in. Now, you can find out more about Miriam and uh, theatre company Why Not uh, via the links in the show notes. Um, along with some of the additions of the Mahabharata that we discuss along the way. Now, I'm also planning a retreat that touches on some of these themes, including the text itself. Uh, so if you want to hear about that first, go to danielsimpson.info, where you can sign up for my newsletter and also find details of all my other activities and teaching. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast and uh, have access to archived episodes and everything else that I share via the same distribution channel, um, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. Your donations really help to make this work possible, so I'm deeply grateful for those. 
Now, without further ado, let's get down to discussing the Mahabharata and, and how to escape from a cycle of revenge with Miriam Fernandez. Miriam, welcome. Thanks so much, Daniel. Nice to be here. I'm so grateful to you for making the time. Um, you are, I think, a very busy person and um, <laughs> <laughs> you're particularly busy in the context in which I saw you, which was on stage in a production of the Mahabharata that was in London a couple of months ago. I got gifted uh, a pair of tickets to, to oh, two thanks. performances for my birthday and uh, yeah, it was amazing. And uh, one of the most amazing dimensions for me was your role in it, because you really frame the whole staging as uh, a storyteller who is telling us about the story that we're hearing about, but also appearing in it. And uh, mm. I went, wondered if you could uh, say a little bit, first of all, about you know why you wanted to tell the story of the Mahabharata. It's been around for a very long time. Um, what can we learn today from this ancient feud? <laughs> um it's a it's a good question so why so uh I co-wrote this version with uh my colleague Ravi Jane who was also the director of the show and um it's actually started with in 2015 Ravi was making a show another show um about the climate crisis and climate refugees specifically and he was using a, a tiny piece of the Bhagavad Gita as like a, an inspiration for that show and he and his collaborators on that show at the time were, they made the show and kind of at the end of it, they joked about like, oh, wouldn't it be great one day to do the whole Mahabharata? And they kind of laughed it off. And that year, the Canada Council was giving out these really big grants, um, these kind of like dream big grants uh, for ambitious projects because it was Canada's 150th birthday. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they applied for that grant uh, and... Uh, and they got the grant to do the whole Mahabharata. Uh, and immediately Ravi was like, uh, no, actually just like give back the money. Like, I don't want to do this. It's too big. It's too much. We'll never, we'll never figure it out. But people convinced him not to give back the money. Um, and then it started the, the process of, of, of creating that the show started then. And it had a couple of iterations. I joined the project in 2018 as a co-writer um, and uh, it was like, it, it, I didn't, I didn't really grow up with the story. I actually encountered the story through the Bhagavad Gita because I studied yoga and you studied the Bhagavad Gita ah, through yoga. Okay. And so it was during my yoga teacher's training that I, that I read the Gita and I'm a theater maker. And so to read like a, a kind of ancient script that's written like a play was very mm -hmm. like surprising to me. Because you just you have it's it's a conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, and so the kind of form of that storytelling was surprising to me. I didn't know that existed. And then um, diving, like my family's from Goa, which is the west coast of India, which was colonized by the Portuguese. So my family is Catholic. So I didn't grow up with the stories of the Mahabharata or Hindu mythology specifically, but. Uh, I grew up with the stories of the Bible, and there are actually a lot of stories that kind of mirror each other, which was very surprising. Um, and so to me, so anyways, Ravi and I went on a long journey of like trying to figure out how to tell the story, which we can talk about more. But um, what kind of became surprising was that the more time we spent with the story, the more relevant it felt like it became, or rather the more that we could relate it to our own lives. 
because I think the story, the story never ceases to be relevant. It's about humanity. It's about all of what makes us human. And the longer you, you stay with it, the longer you know the stories, the more that happens in your life, the more you kind of find yourself coming back to the Mahabharata. Or that's that's been my experience, which has been really interesting. I resonate with that strongly. I mean, the first time I encountered it also was through reading the Bhagavad Gita as a yoga practitioner. And, um, you know, I always stumbled on this war story. Um, you know, what's, yeah. what's yoga got to do with battles? And then I got into, you know, a bit more of the context and I understood a bit more the reason why the war was supposedly, you know, unavoidable. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I got stuck on the next level of the Mahabharata story, you know, this crazy drama where somebody, you know, loses everything in a dice game and uh, yep. why did you do that why are you supposed <laughs> to be the good guy if that's what you do um and so you know i guess it took me a good few readings to start to see some of the subtlety to go beyond the basic soap opera of you know two sides of the family having it out and to start to see that there are no pure good guys and bad guys it's humans in their messiness struggling to figure out the right thing to do and they've all got their you know their trials and tribulations to navigate Mm -hmm. I'm curious, which versions were did you read? Like, what were the what were the sources that you went to? Well, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because if you if you're not a Sanskritist who's capable of reading the whole thing in the original, then you know there really is only one full English translation that's uh, been around for a very long time now, from the late 19th century by uh, Ganguly, and you can read that online, and it's you know pretty archaic. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't get very far with that one, and it's actually yeah. the edition that you were inspired by that led me into the Mahabharata, Carol Sachimurti's okay. retelling, because. It was you know, both readable in the sense of being accessible in the English rendition, but still relatively faithful to you know the underlying text, although she wasn't a Sanskritist. So some scholars will get a bit snooty and say, well, it's not a proper translation. It's a you know, rearrangement of translations. But it does a really good job of framing the story. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to see the production when I saw that you were inspired by that version. It's, it, you know, it drew me in. So, oh, so uh, cool. That's great. And uh, I guess, though, that when you're sort of talking about the other ways in which you were thinking about telling the story, um, you mentioned I've, I've got a copy of uh, the, the text of the play and there's a, an interview with you and Ravi in there and you, you were saying that there was a, a Me Too version, which must have been right around the time that you joined, um, in which yeah. you were basically critiquing the story almost. Um, so you were having a dialogue about the various dialogues and the drama that's unfolding um, and almost ripping it to pieces. And you said that didn't sit right with you in the end. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah. So it was interesting in 2018. So Ravi and I, I guess I'll step back. We are both theater makers. So we create work really on our feet. And so while we were, we would sit and write, uh, we would sit and write scenes and we wrote the script but we would take that script into a rehearsal hall with a group of actors and test things. And sometimes we would get them to improvise and play around. And so in 2018, we were doing one of these workshops and the, the cast at that time, it just happened to be kind of a very young contemporary, like North American, South Asian uh, group of actors. And so it was the fall of 2018 hashtag me too was like blowing up all over the world. Um, and it was clearly front of mind, for everybody. And so in reading these stories and reading stories of, of the Mahabharata, especially the disrobing of Draupadi, uh, a story where a woman is being violated in front of a hall of men and nobody says anything, nobody does anything. Everybody's just kind of complacent. Um, it felt impossible to ignore that. And yeah. so 
Um, it was also a time where Ravi and I were still really getting to know the story ourselves. And mm. so uh, the storytellers at that time were both Ravi and I. And it was like these two people who were outside of the actual story who were telling Ravi that in that version, Ravi, the character of Ravi was telling this, the story to the character of Miriam. And this character of Miriam was kind of like poking holes in it and challenging it. And um, it, what we were really trying to investigate in that version was like, why do we tell these old stories if we don't change? Like, yeah. what's the point of com continually repeating these stories if they don't actually, uh, can a story change us? It feels like we haven't learned anything. So I think a lot, there was a lot of frustration coming, uh, trying, coming out at that time because it just felt kind of pointless. But luckily we didn't, uh, we didn't stay in that version. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest lessons for me in like writing the Mahabharata and having the gift of like, so like five years, eight years, eight years for Ravi, five years for me of writing has been like, uh, they, people say like, you, you only like the Mahabharata lives with you and grows with you and it changes with you over your lifetime. Different stories mean different things. And so in 2018, it was all about feminism and the disrobing of Draupadi for me. But now in 2023, it's it's actually about so many more things. And the, the kind of injustice of that scene is part of it. But it's actually connected to a much deeper root, which is dharma. And um, and to have the gift of time to pull, to pull ourselves out of the immediate was very, very, uh, was a gift for us. That word dharma, um, you describe it in the uh, the sort of storytelling intermission where you uh, have a meal in in between the two the two parts of the play as a slippery fish. And yes. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if you could say a bit more about that and just uh, give us a sense of what you know dharma stands for in the bigger picture. Um, it's I mean it's impossible to define. I feel like depending on who you talk to, they'll tell you like Dharma means so many things. It can mean justice. It can mean right action. It can mean truth, can mean honor. Um, it's interpreted in many different ways. The interpretation that we followed for our script uh, is an interpretation by a, a mythologist named Devdutt Patnayak. Mm -hmm. And he, the way that he describes Dharma is um, it's the law that governs humans which is in fact the opposite of the law that governs animals. So the law, the law of the animal kingdom is the survival of the fittest. The lion hunts the lamb and uh, nobody says he's a villain. The, the lion's a villain and the lamb is a victim. It's just, that's how nature works. It's, it's, it's dharma to hunt the lamb and the lion's going to take as much as it needs. And that's, that's part of the law of nature. As humans, um, Devdat says like our, the fact that, that we have the capacity for empathy is what changes us or should change us um, because we're not animals. We have this huge brain and we have a capacity to, to feel for each other. And if we continue to live in a world where the strongest dominate and, and oppress and take advantage of the weak, then we are becoming, then we become animals. And it, actually as humans, it's our, it's our responsibility to empathize with uh, anybody who has less quote unquote, power than us. And what's interesting about that interpretation is that who's to say who has more power and who has less power in any given situation? Yeah. It's a constant question and it's constantly shifting. 
And so it's our responsibility in, in every situation to assess and understand where we sit and what our responsibility is to the people around us. And so that's that's our interpretation of Dharma that we use in the play. That's a very uh, current sounding message um, in all sorts of ways. Although I uh, you know, feel moved to note that obviously traditionally in India, Dharma also had this uh, function of organizing people into social groups with prescribed roles. And mm -hmm. so perhaps um, one didn't get to challenge abuses of power by those above one in the, in the social hierarchy. One just has to live with it. And mm -hmm. one example of that in the Mahabharata is the, the story of Ekalavya, who has to cut his thumb off as an offering to Drona. Um, you know, one of the many bits and pieces of the story that can't always make it into <laughs> a full telling but uh yeah um coming back though to this question of dharma meaning the right thing to do and the capacity of humans really to to aspire to something better than as you say the survival of the fittest um one dimension as, as you mentioned is justice and there was a really interesting line for me right at the beginning where there's almost a contrast drawn between justice and dharma <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's in the context really of you know this uh craving for revenge as part of the you know retribution for injustice and um the idea of it's all at the beginning of the story a snake sacrifice which is a you know crazy concept in itself we'll <laughs> come into that in a moment maybe but um the idea of killing all these snakes seems you know justified because uh, the king who's doing it has just had you know his his father poisoned by one um and so um yeah he thinks that's that's retribution that is justified but it's not dharma he ends up concluding so what seems justified is not necessarily righteous or virtuous or you know this this higher level idea of what's just um could you say a little bit about you know choosing to actually frame that distinction right at the beginning yeah, so that also came from Devdutt. Uh, so Devdutt actually has a the other source material that we really used was uh, Devdutt Patnaik's Jaya. Oh, you've got it too! Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so those were like our two Bibles, Satyamurthy's and Devdutt's. And um, I think that distinction of justice and Dharma was really revelatory to, to Ravi and I because justice is in the eye of the beholder. And mm. What I think is fascinating about the Mahabharata is somebody who grew up in the West is the really complicated morality. It's never clear who's right and who's wrong. And it's so uh, it's so true to humanity. It's so true to life in a way that a lot of Western stories uh, can be a lot more binary and a lot more black and white and good and bad and right and wrong. And so... Um, this idea of justice, which is like a huge buzzword right now, too. It's, Indeed. it's, a, it's a huge part of uh, our politics right now and our world and how we're understanding ourselves and how we're trying to build a future. Um, but when I think what's interesting about the about this idea of justice and Dharma being separate is that I think as humans, we often uh, use the excuse of justice to justify uh, actions that may or may not be the right thing to the quote unquote right thing to do. And if we look, if we always look at things through a lens of quote unquote justice, it's very, it, it becomes easier to make it black and white. And if we look through a lens of Dharma where every situation is different and where our uh, placement in that situation, uh, we if we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what's my, what's my responsibility in this moment? I think Ekalavia is, an, is a perfect example because uh, I, I would say that moment is not Dharma. If if Drona is actually able to 
to to look at the situation and not be worried for his job or uh, trying to uphold his his social status. It's yeah. not dharma to tell a, a young tribal kid to cut off his thumb. It's it's uh, it's an abuse of power. Exactly. Uh, and so, how do we how do we get out of our own ways? How do we look at ourselves? How do we detach ourselves from ego enough? to be able to ask ourselves those hard questions about what actually, what is my dharma in this moment? It's a much harder question than what is, how how do I get justice for myself? And how do I put myself on the side of the good guys and tell everyone else they're the bad guys? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's part of why we really wanted to make this, the story more complicated too. So, because the story is complicated and I think it can, it, it can be seen or it's historically been seen like the Pandavas are the good guys and the Karavas are the bad guys, but it's, it's much more complicated than that. And the Pandavas are not good all the time. And actually Yudhishthira goes to hell at the end of the story and the Kauravas go to heaven. And like, and the, the complexity of that is like mind boggling. But Well, the good guys win by cheating and, you know, they only do that with, with God's help. So it's, it gets yeah. very complicated indeed. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And at the end of it all, you know, everyone's despairing. So despite winning, um, you know, it's a sort of miserable fate to to have won the battle. It, you know, it'd almost be better to have lost, they end up concluding. And you know, Yudhishthira is very despondent. And uh, um, it's, it's, it, it suggests in a way that, you know, it, it's almost impossible to pick a perfect path. That is the fate of a human being, um, mm. you know to try to fail less uh, rather than to aspire to be, you know, the ultimate success. And I wonder if you could say something sort of bringing to light one of the other questions that you highlight at the very beginning, which I think again comes from Devdutt Patanaik, um, talking about in this uh, forest of stories in which we can get completely lost, (laughs) there is this river of wisdom. And Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder, you know, from the point of view of both the author and the storyteller, um, What's what's the the message of wisdom that you're hoping people will go away with after seeing all of this complexity? It's a big question. Um, hmm. I don't think there's one nugget of wisdom. I think I think it's what's so complicated about the Mahabharata in my experience is like it changes. My relationship to the story changes over time, and the the different experiences that I have in my life change my my point of view on certain stories changes who I empathize with. And I think the, I mean, the story to me is really about someone who achieves Jaya, who's King Janamajaya at the end, um, who who is able to release his anger and release his hate and uh, stop a cycle of revenge that has, that has perpetuated. And uh, that is a revolutionary act. And so I think it's it's interesting. Like, why do we tell these stories? Why, like the question that we were asking in 2018, like, why are we telling these stories if we don't change? And I think the the answer is in the question because it's it's actually in the audience. So this the story is really a meditation. It's not about a specific lesson or uh, a take home or um, figuring out the right answer. It's a meditation on the self, on the on the soul, on the ego, uh, on how we make decisions, on on what are the things that drive us, and 
I think I, or I hope that by experiencing the story over a period of time, like it's a six hour, six, seven hour experience with the meal included, uh, it gives you a different, it gives you time to sink in. And I, I hope that the audience walks away and reflects on it more because that's, I think that's what the story is asking us to do is to reflect, reflect on the story and reflect on ourselves and, and our own actions. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.